Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Creative Live, the world's best online classroom for creative professionals, with classes on songwriting, engineering, mixing, and mastering. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is also brought to you by Ernie Ball, the world's premier manufacturer of guitar strings, bass strings, and guitar accessories. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wanasek, and Al Levy. You know, I figure he's been waiting around for a little while right now, so fuck introing him. Let's just bring him on. What do you guys think? Sounds good. Get him on. Okay, cool. Let me get him in this call. Hello. Hey, Ola. How are you doing? All good. How are you guys? You know. Fantastic. Welcome. Let me just say, I love the Swedish accent. I think it's awesome. Who is that? <laughs> this is Joey. <laughs> okay, cool. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Finally. Oh, I love I love the Swedish accent. I'm actually weirdly attracted to like Swedish stuff for some reason. Mm. To, swe- to Swedish men? Mm. Not, no, not men. Not sexually. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Maybe it's our voices. They're very deep and... Well, you guys speak English better than most Americans. That's the thing. Uh, I mean, it's they teach us English like uh, British English from uh, third grade in uh, middle school, so or preschool. That is so. I mean, uh, the reason why I, I have like a more of an American accent is basically because I've been hanging with more Americans than. Okay, well, let me tell you something about British English. Go ahead. They think that it's uh, it is the original English. I'll give them that. But take a guess, out of all the American dialects, and this is, this is true, this is not just me talking on my ass, out of all the American dialects of English, which one do you think relates the most to the original English? I have no fucking idea. <laughs> Somebody take a guess. Just take a guess. Is it Northern, Southern, California? Like what? There's so many different dialects of American English. No one knows? I have an opinion on this. I would say it's probably Northern, if I had to guess. Wrong. Southern. Let me tell you something about Southern, though. I was reading a book on economic trends or something, and one of the, you know that the entire Southern like slang and, and subsequent ghetto culture language is a derivative of Ulster Scottish um, language from like the 18-something following migration patterns. I don't know. It was a completely stupid book to read. It was really boring. But No, no, but that's, that's exactly the point. The English that in America is made fun of the most is actually technically the closest to the English that's considered to be the best. <laughs> that's right. There you go. It's oh, fucking man. weird. But I actually think Swedish English is I mean, the best. They're, they're different... I mean, different kind of Swedish English. There's the, I mean, my English is very Americanized because I've been in an American band and I've been having American friends, but then there are the real ones that don't really, they don't put on the American accent at all. Like a guy like Per Nilsson, who goes like, he, it's so swinglish, it's insane. And you can definitely hear it's because the Swedes have a kind of a singing thing going when we speak, we have him coming on. So, should, do we? Are we going to need a translator? Uh, no, but I mean, it's it's going to be a lot of fun. I mean, it's I, I think it sounds fun. He talks so nice, and I mean, I love that guy. He's one of my better friends, actually. You know what's interesting though? Another thing about you damn Swedes is why the fuck are you guys so good at music? Like, you're better than us at English. Your high, your standard of living is way higher than here. That's also proven. Why are you guys also good at music? I know that we only hear about like the five bands that are awesome, and you have a thousand more that suck. But still, 
the bands and the musicians, and not just in metal, I mean, in lots of different genres, the groups from Sweden that come out that are good are, like, really fucking good. There's something in your water. Do you know anything about that? I don't think it's the water. I think it's the long winters. I mean, it's uh, the (laughs) summer in Sweden is like two two months. Three months at tops is the Swedish summer. And I mean, the rest of the time is basically just a gray sludge where everyone's just walking around being... I mean, I'm exaggerating, of course, but it's... I mean, everyone's pretty much in a depression state. And I mean, a lot of people, also in Sweden, we, I mean, the government subsidized uh, being in bands and shit like that. So, I mean, if you're a band, you can apply for uh, getting your uh, rehearsal space paid or, I mean, there's a lot of, they really like to help out the the cultural uh, society in Sweden. So, I mean, I think it's most, mostly because of the winters, because we don't have anything else to do. We're not going out or anything like that. So a lot of people start playing instruments. Yeah, but it's not like we have an amazing group of musicians coming out of Maine or something. You know, like we have places with long winters is it's not like we have a great music scene in Alaska. (laughs) (laughs) We might, just no one knows about it. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it's kind of weird because everyone says that, okay, like Swedish metal or Swedish music in general is very high regarded. And it, it actually makes it easy for us uh, just because we're, we're from Sweden. I mean, a lot of more people, I would say more people would probably listen to my music. uh, But if I was from, I mean, Slovakia, and I mean, if the quality would be the same, more people would listen to my music rather than the guy from Slovakia. Yeah, well, they'd give it a chance first, but that doesn't mean they'd keep on listening. No, definitely not. But I think still that uh, people would probably expect the Swedes to be better, even if the, I mean, if the music is basically the same. Well, there are great musicians everywhere, but the thing is, when there's a concentration of great musicians it says something i I just i think it's interesting that your government values art enough to support musicians i I don't think that that's not related to the quality of life that sweden has as compared to other countries and i mean sweden has been doing that for a very long time i mean since the 70s or something like that so i mean uh you have all these badass guitar players from from that area i mean sweden is not that big we're like nine million or something like that i mean per that uh, amount of people there are a lot of musicians and uh a lot of good guitar players came from, from from like the 80s or something like that i mean a lot of those people got help from uh, the government and uh, i mean it's uh i think it's because we've been having it for so long so it's really like grown into it's part of the culture i mean we're very used to it i mean it's definitely part of the culture and uh yeah that might be it i don't know it's not part of the culture here man if people if musicians were getting those kinds of grants from the government on a regular basis, there would be a whole movement calling them, uh, <laughs> calling them all kinds of terrible yeah. things and saying that they're stealing from society when, I don't know, in fact, I feel that art enhances society, but that's... Yeah, but that's definitely like a totally different culture. I mean, it's not easy to just bring it into your system. It's the same thing like if we're going to start talking about like gun laws. I mean, you already have the guns. It's going to be super hard to just remove that 
I, I mean, it's wow. Someone who's not from America who gets it. That's crazy. Yeah, exactly. We have a country of 330 million people and there's 300 million guns in the streets already. I got seven. Do you, you have seven? I have three. Yeah. It's always like that when you're European, Europeans are like always, yeah, why don't you, why do you have all these guns and blah, 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 and gun America, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's, you're already there. I mean, it's not easy to fix. So, I mean, it's not... Just removing all the guns, it's not going to solve anything, really. I mean, it's... Uh... And, in fact, the cliche is true. If you take it away from people like me or Joel or whatever, then who's left with them? It's definitely the same with, like, uh, universal health care. I mean, it's the exact same thing, basically. Uh, and how it's not as easy for you guys to implement it in, into your society. I mean, it's... We're trying. Yeah, you're trying, I know. Yeah, uh, well, I, I was... I think I became initially fascinated by the game Minecraft, which, you mm. know, I was a, a fan of Minecraft when he was still selling it on $1. on like a on a on a regular like um PayPal account yeah. <laughs> with, you know, and it was like give me fifteen dollars and you can have the game for the rest of your life. Yeah. Like <laughs> um so I was an early adopter and I became fascinated with Notch, who is uh, Marcus Pearson. Mm -hmm. Is that how you say his name? Yep. Person. And uh, that's good. He, you know, then he started gaining like additional staff, and I started following the staff, and they were all Swedish. And so I just became interested in that way. Um, but yeah, like there's definitely something about Swedish people that's fascinating to me because they seem to do things on a higher standard level. And they take six week vacations. Yeah, and the, the country, like the the way, yeah, like you said, the, the vacations being like, isn't it mandatory or something like that? It is in Russia. And they've all have, you guys all have saunas in, in your houses. Well, I mean, not all, not all of you, but come on. I mean, uh, yeah, on the countryside, there will definitely be a sauna in your house for sure. I mean, it's... Uh, That's amazing. We, Swedes are the only <laughs> uh, people in the world that calls it something else rather than a sauna. That has what do you own, call it? We uh, we call it. Uh, hang on, just need to switch on to my Swedish mode. Uh, bastu. 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 I can't. Yeah. I can't do it. It's like they call it banya in Russian. Is is it a normal thing in Russia that like everyone has one a banya in their house? Like in their backyard? No, but it's popular to go to Banya. Like Americans, we go to the bar and get drunk. In Russia, they go to Banya. So a bunch of dudes get like half naked, wrap towels around themselves, go sit in the heat, pound beer and alcohol and bullshit. And that's what they do. And that's like the one of the social conventions there, how like dudes hang out. Well, they, so do, they do that in Sweden too, except they have these in their houses. Yeah, I mean, it's more like a, if you're home at someone, some guy's place. I mean, it's not like you're going to, oh, let's go to the... To the sauna place or whatever. I mean, it's like if you're at someone's uh, countryside home, you you go and have a beer in the sauna, definitely, and then you jump naked into the ice cold water and then go back That's up right. and into the sauna. <laughs> yeah, I've I've done that in Sweden. It's awesome. So I just want to know: Do you think that happier people make happier music? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a lot of people. I would say probably get inspiration from from uh, tragedies and bad things happening to them or life situations or whatever. But I definitely feel like if you're living a good life and um, you're happy with uh, how you live and how you work and all that, I mean, I think that's a bigger 
inspiration, definitely. Yeah, I definitely think that it's important rather than having just negative experiences with your country or whatever. I now see it. This is where I might disagree a little bit because I think what I've noticed is a, a lot of the great music that I've worked on came from a place of, of extreme mm. negativity. And then when, when the artists start to succeed on that material, they come back and they have to write new material. And it's gone. And they start to go downhill because they don't have that, that original inspiration. Yeah, I can totally see that. I mean, it makes sense. But I mean, in now I'm not, def, now I'm not talking in metal in general. I mean, just music in general. I think, of course, I mean, if, if they're having a better life, if they have like a hit record that sells a lot and they get a better life, I mean, um, then there's other stuff happening to the equation. I mean, they're like, okay, let's release another album. It might not be, they might not have the same passion uh, or, or they might have more uh, interest in the actual money from the album. I mean, it's uh, also another reason why uh, we talked about it earlier, why there's so many good bands coming out of Sweden. It's basically because the scene over here is so oversaturated with bands. So in order to stand out, you definitely have to up your quality. And I mean, it's it's definitely in Stockholm, at least, It's uh, and Gothenburg, of course. There's so many bands trying to, f- to play... Like there, there are not many venues. I mean, the the actual like venue scene and going to a metal show in Stockholm, it's not that big. I mean, there's just a, a handful of clubs, uh, and I mean, everyone's fighting for the spot to play that club or whatever. I mean, there's so many bands, and I mean, the scene is super saturated. It's yeah, but let's take an equivalent of that, which it would be. LA kind of where everybody's fighting everybody in music thinks they need to go to LA to have a career and guess what most LA bands kind of suck you know you take an equivalent type of situation there's you know there's similar number of people in LA as you guys have in your entire country and there's no tradition in LA of doing not just popular music but superior music I just I think that it's some uh, there's something else that you guys have going on. But that said, since we're talking about, you know, happy life and all that, you know, you're a family man and you do a million different things. You've got your YouTube channel, which, you know, YouTube channel can be many different things. There's a lot of, you know, there's, there's definitely negative stigma with YouTube hacks, but there's a few people who do it well. And in your, in what you do, I think, there's only two people in the world who do it like you do it, and it's you and our good friend Keith Marrow. And I know that it takes a lot of work to write the music, do the demos, make the videos. You're a father. You've got your own band. You're in The Haunted. You're a sick guitar player. Like, how do you do all that? Well, I mean, it's... Um... You can't be depressed and do all no. that. No, no, no. I'm very happy. I mean, all, all the YouTube stuff started when I was uh, when I was having a job. Like I work work as an uh, accountant, actually. What? Uh, That's back awesome. In, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I had a regular desk job, like eight to five, uh, and uh, this was before I had kids. But I had a dog and stuff like that. But I mean, uh, 
then I started doing the videos and that was purely out of passion. I mean, I did it on my spare time. I, I borrowed amps from people in Stockholm and I drove around like every weekend. I went to someone's place like two hours out of town, went back. I borrowed this amp, went back to my place and recorded the amp. And then the day after I would go back and return the amp. And I did this for a good while. And I mean, it was just because I... I do love gear. I love gear. For a good while, do you mean years, months? No, this was uh, probably one one year, one or two years, maybe. And uh, I mean, I love gear so much. I, at least I did back then. So I did all of this out of passion. And I mean, it's... Uh, so later when I discovered like, okay, I was actually able to make a little bit of money out of this. And um, I actually went to... This was like 2012. I went to NAM in Los Angeles and uh, that was the, like the first time I was even out in public as a, as you know, as the YouTube Ula guy. And um, I went there, and I was supposed to record demos and shit like that. And and uh, I got there, and people went up to me and uh, thanked me for my videos and recognized me. And I was like, holy shit! I mean, this was the first time I was out in public, and people recognized me. And uh, I was like, okay. I really think I am, I'm onto something here. So uh, when I got home from now, I quit my job and I just needed to see how far I could push this YouTube thing. And uh, I mean, uh, and I've been doing it for uh, so many years now. It's, uh, it's the, I, I've made it more efficient. And uh, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm kind of stopping doing the YouTube thing. I'm doing it less now because I have bands and I try to concentrate on stuff that makes me happy, which is basically writing music and go out and go out play and all that. Interestingly enough, Keith feels the same way. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that everyone and their moms are doing demos now. And it's like a, exactly the same thing. It's oversaturated with gear demos on YouTube now. And I mean, both me and Keith were probably first with doing what we do. And uh, that's why both of us uh, gained the recognition. And uh, I think both of us do have the opportunity now to become someone else rather than the YouTube guy. Because, uh, I mean, for me, uh, when people are referring me to the YouTube guy, I know where I come from. I know why that has made me uh, recognizable. But I mean, I'd rather be remembered for the music and uh, for the mail. But YouTube is just an infrastructure. If you don't have good stuff going through there that catches people, it's going to fail. Uh, there's millions and millions of videos going up to YouTube every single day. So to actually develop a following is not, it's not an easy thing. But I feel like you skipped something like between borrowing all those amps and getting to the point where you're at NAM and people know who you are, you have to learn how to make good videos in the process too. Like that's all... And that's a whole other thing. Yeah, of course. I mean, I was, I was, I was making videos every week. So I mean, and uh, I always wanted to up my game. I mean, okay, this video was good. How can I make it better the next time? Uh, I bought cameras. I mean, I I brought gear, uh, bought gear, the uh, studio stuff. And I mean, it's uh, I just try to up my game all the time. And um, I mean, eventually you just become a master at your trade. I mean, this is the same way I, I learned about production. Basically, I was just trial and error and just uh, trying to learn everything myself. And uh, I mean, it's... Uh, so you didn't go to school for video? No, but I've been doing it for since 2008 now. So, I mean, it's... 
It's like when you learn Photoshop. I mean, I wasn't as good of a Photoshop artist in 10 years back, and I didn't know anything about production in, in the start of 2000. But I mean, I forced myself to learn, and that's basically how everyone does it today. So started in 2008 doing this stuff. 2013 is when you realized that it's... 2012. Okay, 2000, so four years later, yeah. you realized this might have some potential. Yeah. And then I met you in 2013, and your life became amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I met I met you, and my life was amazing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just no. <like> that. <laughs> that's a that's a you see you guys are great in English, but uh, the reason I, I wanted to bring up the length of time is just to illustrate that no matter what you're doing with music or creative arts or building a business, this shit don't happen overnight. You may have only heard of Ola in 2012 or 2013 or recently, but the reason you even know about them is because of the years and years that went into it, yeah. like anything else that requires a high level of skill. Yeah, and I mean, the, the reasons I, I got to join Six Feet Under, that was just like two months after I quit my job, was basically because Chris saw my videos. And the same thing goes with The Haunted. I mean, the other guitar players saw my videos. So, I mean, I have those two gigs to, I mean, to thank for my YouTube videos. I mean, it's... Uh, well, that's, and that's the other thing that I think that you and both Keith share that makes everything you've done with the videos legitimate is you got accepted by one of the old school death metal bands and then The Haunted. And that just says right there that it's not just YouTube. You're the real deal. And just the same way that Keith has Conquering Dystopia with Alex Rudinger and Alex Webster and Jeff Loomis. I mean, how much more credibility do you need? Yeah. So with that said, let's talk about some guitar shit. I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> what is your, what do you look at when you're looking for this, the quality the build quality of a guitar like because i know there's a lot of different guitars you can get f built from all over the world and i'm curious what do you think is the best and what is it that you're looking for to determine what is the best um i mean it's just basically like first impression is a very important uh aspect for me i mean as soon as i put the guitar in my lap i can definitely feel like okay this was not built right <laughs> Or like it's not built for me. I mean, it's you feel it. You feel it in certain guitars. I mean, even like these five thousand dollar guitars, you can put those in your lap and it's like, hmm, okay. And I don't. I don't even have to strum a chord or anything. <laughs> I just sit with it and I feel like okay. Like it's imbalanced or something. No, or it just feels off. It doesn't feel loved. <laughs> do you, so do you find that sometimes the really small boutique, super expensive? Companies have tougher time meeting good quality standards than some of the bigger manufacturers. I wouldn't say that. I mean, it's like some certain, I mean, some custom shop guitars from various custom shop builders or brands. I mean, some of them are just out of this world. I mean, you can feel how well built it is that you can feel like all the joints definitely one of the thing, first things i look at is just like joints uh, between fretboard and body and i mean uh, you can see that's usually what like where the quality kind of if there's a problem with with uh, joints or any ugly 
uh, lines or anything like that, you can definitely feel like, okay, that sets like the tone of the whole guitar and how well built it was. And uh, I mean, some custom built guitars just feels like they're hand built. Now, do you mean custom built as in like the Washburn custom shop or do you mean like... Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. It's, if we take that as an example, I I can feel like when I when I take that guitar, I can definitely feel like, okay, this was made uh, by uh, people that actually care to make this guitar good and, uh, and make it play well. And I mean, it's... But then again, I've got that kind of feeling when I've been sitting down with a $500 guitar as well. So, I mean, it's... But then again, I mean, if it's from a series of guitars, uh, an exact copy of that first $500 guitar, if I try another one, that one can be an absolute dud. So, I mean, it's definitely it's definitely up and down. But I'm sure that people aren't sending you the, you know, the sweatshop-made models. I'm sure they're sending you the... You know the ones that they actually care about, or I would hope they are. I mean, uh, to be completely honest, I'm not gonna gonna make this uh, Washburn their super awesome um, uh, <laughs> quote, but I mean, the, the guitars that I'm playing live are actually the the cheap ones because uh, if I bring my U.S. guitars, I'm just gonna break them and uh, hit them into cabs and shit like that. It's already happened. That's smart. No, that's good. That's a good thing to talk about too, because let's, you know, there's, there's situations where you want to have a guitar that's dedicated for performing on a higher standard, like in the studio that doesn't get used in, in the live environment where it gets all beat up and, and messed up. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, stolen. I had my uh, the first Washburn I I got was a white U.S. custom shop, and I was super happy. It's super awesome place, amazing, and I brought it live. And uh, when I got home, I noticed that the case had got a got a some bump into it, and I opened it up, and the it it had a, had a ship on the headstock. And I mean, it's and uh, that sucks when it's a when it's one of your favorite guitars. So that was like, okay, I'm not going to bring any of my more expensive guitars on tour. It doesn't make sense. And, um, I mean, it's, uh, I bring all the cheapest guitars on, on tour now. I mean, a lot, as long as they have uh, the Evertune bridge and, uh, the pickups that I want, I mean, it's, and, uh, I'm not really that picky with guitars, to be honest. I mean, as, as long as, as they play well. Do, I mean, do you really think that the, the, the intricacies of tone that you would get from a slightly better guitar than a really good guitar will make any difference live anyways? Not at all. I mean, it's, to, to be perfectly honest, uh, I even recorded the last Fear album with my cheap guitar because that's the guitar I'm, I've been playing the most. And I mean, it's... So it felt best on your hands. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not that it sounded the best. I mean, I've, I've, I went through guitar to guitar just to try which one sounds the best. But I mean, I'm getting the best feeling out of this guitar because it's the one I'm most used to. And I mean, uh, for me, that's more important to have like the, por- the performance being better than the actual sound of the guitar. I mean, basically all the guitars sound the same because they're built the same. They're all set neck and they all have the same body body wood and all that. So it's not a it's not a big difference at all. 
Well, I mean, that just goes back to the thing that we always say, which is the majority of your guitar tone is in your hands. That that should be the priority, whatever makes your hands play best. So you're just echoing what we always say. I agree. I mean, that, that's also one of my, I mean, one of the curses, I would say, with with me and my YouTube videos is that people are, are always writing like, yeah, uh, when Ola records an amp, it basically sounds the same from demo to demo. And it's like, uh, it's it's hard because that's the way I sound. I mean, it's like, I'm not trying to make every amp sound the same. It's just like the my way of playing definitely shines through a lot of the amps. So uh, real, real quick, when I was younger, my dad was very involved with Ingve. I love Ingve. And yeah, everyone knows about him through his Marshalls and his Strats, but I've sat with him on a tour bus playing through a little pig nose amp warming up he sounded exactly the fucking same but joey joey people say that about you as well or they say that about andy sneep's productions i think that people like to say that about people's work even though it's not always true well the other problem you get is you get people who i well i get people that i work with who are a fan of what i do right and i might think like okay well i see what you guys are doing and i think we can make that interesting by doing it this way and they might be like well we don't want to do it that way we just want to do it the way you normally do you know like how you did this record or how you did that record and i will get pigeonholed into having to do whatever the artist wants from me you know i don't get the luxury of just you know i can't just uh reinvent myself every album because the people are coming to me for a specific sound or a specific reason. Well, do you think that's the same with you, Ola, that like if you get hired to do a video, they're expecting what you do and they're not expecting you to give them something where you suddenly give them a Grateful Dead hippie jam band song, you know? I mean, it's like, it definitely matter, depends on what type of gear I'm trying. I mean, it's if someone sends me an orange amp, it's not, I mean, it's not like I'm going to slam a, uh, an overdrive before and make it sound like every other amp uh, with an overdrive in front of it. I mean, I, I guess people want to hear how the orange actually sounds. And I mean, so it definitely feels like, okay, if I do an orange amp, I might do a, a sludger type of song or whatever. I mean, it's, you definitely have to... Um, to uh, change it up for what type of gear you're you're trying to demo. I mean, it's, but I mean, it's it, it's always the same. You know, I'm I'm using the same guitars. I'm using the same gear. I'm recording with my Apogee and my cabin. It's always like a SM57. I mean, it's it's gonna sound the same in a mix together with bass and drums. They will sound even more the same. That brings up an experiment you did with Keith that I want to talk about. And correct me if I'm wrong, I seem to remember that you guys did an experiment just to prove this point where you both played the same song through the same exact shit just to show that two different players sound completely different with everything else the same. Yeah, I mean, I think it was once, I think Keith, the, Keith and I did one of my feared songs and we played through the... Uh, through the Nascule, like Seymour Duncan Nascule pickup or something like that. And uh, one of us reamped it. I think it was Keith, actually. And I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, whenever it's, that's Keith, it's Keith's part, it sounds like Keith. And whenever it's my part, it sounds like me. I mean, it's, it's weird how it's... 
It's true. No, it's not weird, but I mean, it's a fact of life. Exactly. It's true. I mean, so, I mean, yeah, that definitely showcased how the same equipment can definitely sound so much. It can differ so much. I mean, it's uh, so. So in a way, it's good that you're using the same guitars and the same 57 and the same. If anything is different, it'll be the head you're showcasing. Yeah, and th- th- it depends. I mean, a lot of people are expecting me to change it up. Uh, people have different expectations of what a test is. That's a good point. I mean, a lot of people are, they want to see me demo the same setup, just switch out the amp or just pick up or whatever. And I mean, it's hard to make it everyone happy. So I just I just do whatever works for me or whatever I, I have set up at the time. I mean, it's... It's uh, you're you're never gonna win exactly yeah uh, at this so I mean it's like you, you just do what you feel is right and uh, and uh, hope that people enjoy it <laughs> yeah you get on Gear Sluts and you you follow I follow Stephen Slate on there and I'll yeah I'll read through his little comparison things and he'll be like okay well we're gonna compare this uh, analog piece of gear with with this uh, plugin uh, algorithm. And people like, you know, they go through the whole thing and like, whoa, <laughs> you didn't do the test right. Yeah. They get mad with the outcome, you know, like pick the one that sounds like the actual hardware yeah. and they end up picking the plug in. They get all <laughs> pissed off and <laughs> and he's like, hey, I, you know, it was a blind test. And they're like, yeah, but you didn't do yeah. this. You didn't do that. So I totally get it. And I think um, there is a lot of people that believe you need to have the most expensive guitar, the most expensive amp to get a great tone and it's just simply not true not true at all i do that test too with on my clients with the kemper yeah um because you know a lot of the bands that i've recorded have a lot of purists in them who hate digital gear hate this hate that and so i'll be like okay here's a and b one's a 5150 one's a 5150 profile i made tell me which one is real and typically, they like the Kemper better. Yeah. Strangely enough. Yeah. Pisses them off. Yeah. So let, let's talk about guitar tone. So we've, you know, so we agree that it's primarily in the hands. Do you have any sort of practice routine or warm-up routine or just ritual or anything that you do to get yourself in the mode to sound awesome or stuff you did before that led you to always sound awesome whenever you just plug in a guitar like what what are you what are you doing on guitar like what are you focusing on in order to get your tone i mean it's not like i have a ritual to make my tone awesome it's uh <laughs> i just plug in <laughs> well but by by ritual by ritual i don't mean like you know draw, drawing a pentagram and like invoking <laughs> satan i mean like a ritual of like the same 30 minute warm-up you do every time or something i mean it's like i don't really when i'm home recording i don't really warm up at all i mean it's uh that's something i do when i'm out on tour and just to get warmed up before a gig it's like like usually i want to have like one hour where i can just sit around and just play and uh, usually like all alternate picking up and down and just stupid stuff uh, just to get the fingers going, but I mean, at home when I'm recording, it's like, yeah, I don't really bother uh, warming up just to record. I I take my cup of coffee eight o'clock after I drop my kid off at daycare. I just go in, pick up the guitar, and start recording from from where I left off the day before. And I mean, it's not it's not a it's not as romantic as 
you would think. I mean, it's just I'm just trying to make my time as efficient as I can, as I can. And and I mean, it's I actually think that's pretty. It's pretty romantic actually to already be at the point where you can just plug in and go. But I mean, I'm not I'm not playing over my ability, so it's not going to be a problem to uh, to for me to start recording. I mean, sure, sure. If I'm doing it, if I'm recording solos, yeah, sure. It might take a full day before I nail the solo, but I mean, it's, but usually for rhythm and this usual stuff that I do, which is basically, okay, 90% I, what I record is are rhythms. And I mean, that's automatically, I've been doing it for so long. So it's not, I don't really need to warm up. What were you about to say, Joey? I was going to say, um, if you're, you know, let's say you're a, a, an athlete who does running and sure there's, you know, there's some stretches you need to do, but for some, for someone that doesn't run at all ever, they would have to warm up and stretch way more than someone who does it every day. So I think the point is like, you know, if you're playing guitar um, on a regular basis, then I, I would assume that you would have to do a lot less warming up before you, before you record and stuff. And I think the reason why you, you do want to warm up, um, on tour is because you go from zero to a hundred in like three minutes. Cold hands suck. Yeah, I mean, th- and then you're playing intensively in for one hour. So I mean, it's not when I'm home recording. It's like okay, record, delete. It's always pauses everywhere, and I mean, it's not like you're gonna get a tired in your arms or anything like that. Well, so was there ever a time period in your life where you just practiced your fucking ass off? Uh, I mean. Not to the point where I'm going when I'll like John Petrucci and play like six hours a day. Uh, I mean, I've been playing for so long. I've been playing since I'm I was 13 years old, and I'm 33 today. So it's like I've been tw- playing for 20 years, and it's not like I've been practicing uh, like an addict. I've just been doing it uh, for shorter spurts, like uh, through uh, yeah. I mean, since. 20 years and I mean well let me tell you something that John Petrucci said that echoes what you're saying John Petrucci has always said and uh, you know I'm probably going to get the quote wrong but that you get a lot more benefit if you play two hours a day every day than if you do six hours and then take a few days off and six hours and take a few days off and uh, I know a lot of guitar players who echo that. And Joel is actually one of the sickest guitar players I know. So what do you think about that? Well, um, it's not how long you practice. And I'm a guy that used to play 12, 13 hours a day just practicing things like speed picking. I mean, I, t- I took it to that level. I'm very, very obsessive. And I would say that what's the most important thing with practice is not the length of practice, but that you actually have a focused goal when you're practicing. So you're not just sitting there noodling, screwing around, dicking off. If you want to get better, you have to force yourself to get better and you have to get a game plan. It's like having a business plan. Okay, how are we going to market this product? You figure out a strategy and then you work towards it and you execute. It's the same thing with practicing. You have to know what you want to accomplish, why you want to accomplish it, and what are the steps to get there. So, you know, you could practice 20 minutes a day, but if it's a f- intense 20 minutes where you're focused, you're going to yield a much higher result than someone who practices six hours a day and just noodles. So I would say that 
I agree. I think that practicing in consecutive days is important, but um, you should definitely not overdo it. You know, you can wear out your joints. That's something I kind of did from practicing too long as you get a little tendonitis. Well, that and editing drums in the studio didn't help that at all. But uh, I'm definitely a fan of practicing every day, but having a focused and intense practice versus just needlessly wandering. Well, I know that when I was practicing all the time, I had everything divided into 15 or 30 minute segments, and I always had a goal for the day, the week, the month. Always. Um, And I got even harder about that when I went to Berkeley, because when I went to Berkeley, I thought I was going to get there and be surrounded by some fucking amazing people everywhere. And granted, Gus G was in my dorm, and James Malone from Arsis was in my dorm, and so there were you know, sprinklings of greatness here and there. But overall, most people sucked ass. And there were all these guys who practiced 12 hours a day, and they fucking sucked. They were terrible. And it's like, what are you doing? How are you putting in this much time and just sucking? And it's just because they sit there and they're like, all day long, not thinking about anything other than how high can I get this metronome marking? Not how clean can I play it at this speed, just how fast can I get it all day? Most of them got injured. Let me interject and say cleanness is actually a function of slowness. And a lot of people don't understand this. I spent a long time breaking down speed picking because for me, it was a very, very difficult thing on guitar. And literally in a period of three weeks, I went from being able to pick like slow to picking really fucking fast and cleanly. And the difference is, I always tried to play as fast as I could and it was kind of sloppy and I'm like, yeah, this isn't working. You have to go back to basics. So the way your neural tree grows in your brain when you're learning a new skill or if you're trying to unlearn is you have to take something really retardedly slow with perfect technique and repeat it ad nauseum for a long time, then do it over a series of a couple of days. And then you start building that neural pathway like this is how you move every little micro movement perfectly. And then when you speed it up, that neural pathway is now reinforced. So you're the speed will then correlate to what you've just trained into your hands. So you'll pick up speed, but you'll have that cleanness that you trained. And a lot of people glaze that. They don't care. They just want to try to play as fast as they can. And I used to see this all the time. You know, a guy will, you're like, look at me sweep. And like, dude, you're hitting like three of the notes out of like the 27 in that lick. What are you doing? It Top note, bottom note. <laughs> it used to piss me off because I'm a guy that actually learned to play all the notes. And, um, you know, it's all about learning to do it slowly and practicing it very perfectly every single time until it becomes a habit. And it's way harder to unlearn something that you've done incorrectly than it is to just do it right the first time. So that's something I used to harp on very, very much back in the day. Well, well with all that said, okay, so for Ola's case, because Ola, you just told us you're not into the John Petrucci shit. You are mostly play rhythm, so you will do solo sometimes. But Definitely. There are times when you still need to learn new things, like when you join a new band, like The Haunted or Six Feet Under. So how do you work that into your schedule? Uh, And do you have a process for learning other people's stuff to the point where you can actually be good enough to get into yet another legendary band? The, The times that I've seen that my playing has progressed has been the times where I've join new bands because I've uh, been forced to learn someone else's music. The process that I have is basically, before I even pick up the guitar, I just uh, take all the songs that I need to learn and put them on my iPod or iPhone or whatever. And I just 
etched them into my skull. I mean, I listen to them all the time, every day, every night, and just uh, just to learn the songs exactly like by heart, you know, in my head. Kevin Talley, who you were in a band with, who I was in a band with, who's one of the best death metal drummers ever, who has filled in for just about every death metal band you can imagine, has learned entire sets for bands like Devil Driver, Gojira, Black Dahlia Murder on plane rides. And his first step is to do what you do, which is listen to it constantly so that it's ingrained to the skull. So just want to say, you're not the only one who does that. So, okay, go on. So, I mean, uh, and after that, when I know the songs by heart, I mean, even the drums, I'm listening to all the instruments, not just the guitars. And so I know what parts, after that, when I know them by heart and I can basically sing along to the song, I pick up the guitar. And it, and I mean, the, the process of learning the guitar parts are going to be so much easier when you know the songs by heart. And I mean, then just picking out the songs is just super easy after that. It's always different when there's another guitar player who's written the music. So, I mean, in, in that sense, it's very important to listen to the, uh, to know the songs by heart e even before trying to, to uh, pick up the guitar because it's going to be hard, hard enough as it is just learning the music. Okay, and so then once you actually sit down with the guitar, then what's next? Uh, that's when I just start to pick out the songs like I've always been doing. I mean, uh, when I started playing guitar, I didn't have tabs or I mean, I didn't have slow down uh, apps or whatever. So um, I learned Pantera songs just using ear. And I mean, just trying to <laughs> go back and forth and just trying to hit the notes and just uh, try to transcribe the music with my ear rather than just trying to find a tab or notes. I, I don't know any theory or anything like that, so I'm not... But you hear it. That's more important anyways. Yeah, I mean, it's... I think in, in the end, I think that's a better way for you to learn the guitar and, uh, I mean, to discover the fretboard of your guitar as well. I mean, after a while, you're going to know exactly what, if you hear a tone, where it's, where it's at. From going from, say, like a simple E chord and you hear an, an interval of some some note and you'll definitely know where that note is if you've been doing it for for uh, as long as I've been doing it. So, I mean, for me to transcribe a song is kind of a quick process uh, as long as it's, it's an easy song. <laughs> but I'm sure that those ear skills that you developed have, have enabled you to be able to record so well and be able to focus on tone and get the parts right because you have the ears in that spot. Uh, that's why you can just sit down and pump this stuff out. I'm talking about the videos and and that and all that. Yeah, and, and the thing that I've been doing it for so long, I mean, it's, it has been my hobby since late 90s. And I mean, I've been trying to write riffs every day since the late 90s. So, I mean, I have a lot of shitty riffs uh, in my past but uh, now when I try to write a riff, for for example, it's like okay, I know exactly when it's when it's a good riff, or I can just scrape uh, like some other riff. Or I mean, it's so a lot of people ask me how I write riffs. Right now, it just comes naturally, really, because I've been doing it for so long, and I know beforehand if it's gonna how to not write a shitty riff. Here's a question: Have you ever gone into the studio and been recorded by someone else? Uh, I have uh, back. In my first band, um, this was like the late 90s. 
As I say, you don't mean six feet under. Uh, no, because then I record myself at home in Sweden. So in all reality, you've been good enough to record on your own that you don't need to go to a studio at all. No, I mean, I, I like that instead to be able to record at home and, I mean, not bother anyone else with with my routines or, I mean, I like having the ability to go uh, grab my coffee whenever I want to, go take a piss or go play video games and uh, go pick up my kids from daycare. I mean, it's <laughs> like, it's, I don't want to bother anyone and take someone else's time. Whenever we, like with the latest Haunted, Haunted album, uh, when we went to record the drums, I always like to go and uh, be in the studio uh, as, as the songwriter and recording the drums. So, I mean, it's, it's more of, a, of me trying to be efficient, basically, uh, recording all my shit at home. So let's talk about your rig at home. Let's talk about some hard recording stuff. E efficiency is key to you. You get great tones. So what's, what's your setup? Yeah, it's basically been the same for the past years. I've I'm I'm always been using the Apogee stuff uh, for recording, even for recording DIs. I've always been using the instrument input, like the high... Z input on the Apogee um, and uh, they've always been really clean and uh, always been sounding awesome when I'm uh, reamping. so right now I'm using the Apogee Quartet uh, and uh, this is kind of <laughs> I've been using Behringer Truth monitors or speakers for uh, the past two or three years don't tell Bobcats <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually switched switch from Genelex now that's interesting. Why did you do that? I was just having a hard time with the Genelex. I really try to like them and really try to make my shit sound good with them, but I, I was struggling. And then I heard the, uh, the Behringer, and it's like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. They just sound better to me. Yeah, this is my, my argument against Bob Katz is that, you know, I don't give a fuck. You could have a half million dollar speakers, but if you don't, interact with them right then who cares yeah exactly you could you could have 20 dollars speakers but if if your mixes sound awesome yeah who cares and that's working for you then who cares yeah <laughs> so what about your guitar setup like do you have it perma mic'd or do you mic it up every time uh usually i i do mic it up every time but right now i have a randall iso cabinet like a four by twelve it looks like a regular four by twelve but it has it's actually an enclosed speaker uh, with a mic. Now, did you modify it at all? Uh, no, not this one. I had the old one. That's like the uh, the classic uh, isolation cabinet, which is basically just a um, a big box with a one uh, Celestian vintage in it. And uh, that one I did try to mod because it was so boomy and uh, really boxy sounding. And uh, I mean, it's I, I used it, and I mean, it's it's all right. But I mean, at some point, it was really hard to dial away that boxiness. Yeah, I've used that too. I had the same experience. And uh, this four by twelve is actually a bit better, and, and uh, I haven't modified it at all. Wait, wait, wait! It's a four by twelve ISO. Yeah, it's it's shaped like a big four by twelve. This is new since last year. Oh uh, wow! And inside, it's uh, it's a one by twelve. So I mean. Um, it basically looks like it's 4x12, but it's an isolation cabinet. Well, you know, one thing Andy Sneep taught me is that a big part of the tone that comes out of miking a guitar is the actual shaking, the actual vibration of the cabinet itself once you get it going. So yep. them 
making it into a four by twelve style makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and I mean, it, I'm not having the same boxiness problem like I had with the uh, previous Randall iso- isolation cabinet. So uh, right now I have m- my microphone set up in there, and I d- don't touch uh, that setup at least. And then I just have a very <laughs> I have very many uh, amplifier heads. By the side of it. Here's a question for you, Ola. When you mic up an amp, what are you usually listening for? For example, if you're towards the center of the cone, you're going to get a lot more brightness. Where if you go to where the dust cap meets the center, you get a little bit less. Or if you go out and you know towards the sides, it's a bit darker. And there's a lot of different theories. And I feel like when I was learning to mic cabinets, this is something that took me years to dial in, like what to listen for. Where all of a sudden you're like, yeah, that's going to translate great in a mix. So what do you usually listen for when you're miking a cab? Because no one can deny the tones that you get. I mean, the the thing that I that I've discovered is the way that I mic my speaker now is basically to fit the sound of my hands because it's not going to sound the same if uh, if if Keith Merrill was playing the same same rig that I have at home I would probably mic it different I've been micing it for so micing cabinets for so long I mean it's the what I found is that my kind of sweet spot it's just outside the center so I mean the microphone basically just touches the center of the speaker and uh, for me, that's the most pleasant part of, uh, gives the most pleasant uh, sound, basically, for my uh, kind of playing. I like, I, I like keeping it simple. I mean, I like having just one microphone and not having like five on a cabinet, because if I have five, uh, I will never be able to uh, get satisfied with any combination. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> uh, it, if I have too many options, I'm, I'm going insane. So I like having the the one microphone only, and I mean, uh, just outside the center cone is, is that what you call it, the cone or the center? Sure, yeah. Uh, just outside that is is like my my sweet spot, I would say, at least for a for a V30 speaker with a T75. I like to have it just a bit uh, further out, actually. So it's uh, def- definitely uh, differ from speaker to speaker and. Uh, from who's playing, actually. Let's talk about one mic versus many, because I think, I, I think the the cliche term of phrase goes, if you can't get a good sound with 157, you don't know how to get a good sound. Oh man, this gets me fired up. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about it. Well, mm-hmm. I mix a lot of records. Um, I clear usually more than 50 songs a month. And what really pisses me off is when people send me a multi-mic setup where they've got five mics going on and every single one of them sounds like shit. And it's like, (laughs) if you can't get one to sound good, what makes you think that putting three more shitty ones to sum into that is going to make it sound good? Now, some dudes pull it off and get amazing tones. For example, Will Putney, I think is fantastic at that. But a lot of like the best tones I get to mix where where I'm not like, okay, I need to reamp this because it sucks is usually where somebody just has a single di per track and there's like one performance so it's just one mic and they committed something and usually those guys seem to have it a lot better than the guys who send me like five mics so and rant well you know something interesting was i was watching a pensado's place video where he's talking about getting heavy guitar tone and it had like five different microphones and I didn't think the tone was all that great. I mean, I think that he's amazing, and that show's amazing. But it, it it's just it's interesting to me that the sickest, 
heavy tones I've heard are generally, like you said, one mic. Wait, Dave Pensato was telling people how to get a heavy guitar tone? Yeah, there's one of them what that's the all about getting a heavy guitar tone. I don't want to, I love Pensato's place and I think it's a great show and I have the highest amount of respect for Dave and what he does there, but I feel like in the heavy guitar game, there are maybe 20 to 50 guys in the world in terms of like producers and mixers and stuff that continually rip out like sick shit. For example, like Sneep or Colin Richardson or like Ola, you rip really amazing t- sounds. And it's like, the guys who got there didn't get there by accident. So it's like, when I think of great guitar tone, I think of those guys. So like when somebody else that isn't known for getting great guitar tone is, I don't know. I just, I hold it to that standard. I'm like, all right, well, Andy Sneap's guitar tone sound like this. And then there's everybody else's kind of, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, the guitar tones in a lot of pop mixes, when I'm talking about heavy tones, are not that good. Oh, they're terrible. Yeah, usually. Usually. Now, but then again, you go like active rock and those guys know how to get really awesome guitar tones. So it's just, I don't know. I, I think that if you're producing hip hop and pop and shit like that, you probably shouldn't be teaching people how to mic heavy guitars, but opinion, I'll keep my opinions to myself. <laughs> well, I, I just think that it, in the more traditionalist recording approach, which is completely opposite of metal because metal breaks almost every single rule imaginable in recording they tend to like the idea of having a ton of microphones on there all kinds of condensers and ribbons and all this sh- all this shit it's an ego thing it's like okay i was reading this thing about frank filippetti when he was recording corn he's like yeah man we used five mics on the kick drum to get that sound and i'm like fuck off you used five mics you grabbed a sample you may have blended five mics into a thing but you grabbed one sample replaced one of those tracks and boom there's your sound you know what i mean like People like to overly complicate things because it's an ego thing. It makes them feel better. Like, oh, I'm using five mics. Look at me go. And the band is sitting there going, oh, yeah, dude, that's so cool, man. He used five mics to get our sound. Whoa. And, you know, it's like a a pothead moment where you're just like, no way. So I just... I, I, I believe in simplicity. I, I used to overcomplicate a lot of things, but then I realized it was just me wanting to feel better about myself and had nothing to do with the actual results that I was getting. So once I started simplifying in my career, I started getting a much better result. And yeah, it didn't look as cool, but I don't know. That's just my two cents on that. You're not looking at a record or looking at a guitar sound in the end product, though you're listening. Well, should we talk about the comparison of... of- analog real tones with mics versus amp simulators? Absolutely, because, I mean, Ola, you've got your own amp, the Satan amp, but uh, you've also, you know, worked with a lot of sims and did the thing for Menace. You you do sim stuff as well. Do you find a big difference between the two? Uh, Well, I basically use sims when I'm... uh, Mostly when I'm just demoing or doing like uh, writing songs and stuff like that. I mean, it's for me, it's very convenient to use the Sims because uh, then I can go out on tour with my small computer and I can get the same sound in my songwriting with the Sims. And I mean, but the problem is that I have my amp and my sound. And the problem is that I can't really get away from that using the Sims because that's just the way that I sound. I mean, a lot of those Sims sound super awesome. But this, the thing I was talking about, like my curse with the way that I sound with my hands, is that I think a lot of other people sound way better than I do with the amp sims 
I mean, for me, uh, I'm using amp sims for like demos and and uh, if I'm doing less metal stuff. But it, as, when I when it comes to like the doing the haunted or like feared and stuff like that, I need to have the amplifier and the and a mic cabinet because uh, it's just it's just something I've always been doing. And I mean, it's uh, I feel the most comfortable uh, doing it that way. I think it's because you're a player. Maybe, maybe. Do you feel like there's a different response? Because like when I pick up an amp sim, the way it re- reacts to my pick attack is very different than how a real amp does. And I can feel it right away just on how, you know, like the, the palm mutes or, you know, just the intricacies in the way that I riff. And it, it's something that to me playing through a sim feels weird until I play through it for a very long time. And then it starts yes. feeling a little <laughs> bit more natural. But when I go back to a real amp, I'm always like, oh, yeah, now that feels right. Well, I mean, I'll just say as a guitar player that, um, and I, I'm very much into sims especially when I'm recording other people. And hell, I've used Sims to record my own stuff as well. But as a guitar player, there's a big difference when you're plugging into a rig that's fucking going. Like an original 5150 mic'd up properly has something that a Sim doesn't have. And I do think there's something in the response that's different. I also... I also think, though, that Sims have something that amps don't have, too. Uh, it's just a different size. Totally. Like, um, what I notice a lot with the Sims is there's just way more consistency. And maybe that's the one thing that people actually don't like about the Sims is that they are too consistent. But when I have, you know, a certain chord being played and, and going through the Sim and it's being played at a certain velocity level, it has the same sound, like, every single time. Whereas with you know in the analog world that doesn't really happen. You've got a lot more variance, um, especially because there's air moving as well. So I think that they both deserve a spot, you know, in the world, and they both they both have their strengths and weaknesses and their pros and cons. Absolutely. And so it's just interesting to hear someone who's embracing both sides like me. Um, I don't really use a lot of real amps, but I'm not opposed to doing it. You know, so. I think a problem that I have is that people are expecting me to record the amps. So I won't get away using amp sims because people are definitely going to hear it. And, uh, well, it's where you started. You started with the real amps. Exactly. I mean, and people, people expect that. And I mean, if I would go, go and use, uh, amp sims on a haunted album, I mean, it would probably sound awesome, but then again, people wouldn't expect that from me. So I kind of, um, probably painted myself into a corner with yeah. that one. It's the same thing with my productions. I can't, I can't go into, um, you know, some analog studio and record an album on tape because people don't expect me to. <laughs> <laughs> Pitchforks. I want to just tell you guys something from my Florida experiences. You know, we have a massive arsenal of amps down there. I'm in Atlanta right now, but in Florida. Basically, there's a room where all my amps, all of Mark Lewis's amps, and all of Jason Sukoff's amps, they're all there. Um, and they're all piped into a room that has cabinets with a bunch of mics, different cabinets and all that. And it's kind of like reamping heaven. There are a lot of amps in there, all kinds of stuff, from the basic PVs to your amps there, Ola, to my Bogners, Soldanos, like... Lots of fucking stuff. 
And sometimes I will go reamp in there, and I still like the sim tone better. So I feel like there's always room at the table for both. The technology has come so far for amp sims. We're not like in the world of the Pod 2.0 anymore, which actually was okay. It, it, that was amazing at the time, though. It was very amazing at the time. Kelly Diamond plate. <laughs> the world has advanced, and digital technology is much further along than than it used to be. But uh, so I think what it comes down to, in a lot of cases, is what makes the player that's being recorded play the best. What's going to feel the best for him? Because as a guitar player who really worked hard at guitar. I'm very sensitive to the way something feels when I'm playing through it, and the feel is definitely not the same. However, when I'm recording somebody else, I often prefer Sims because it's it's easier for me to get the job done. Just a, just a small detail: uh, when I'm tracking guitars or tracking DI, I actually monitor through my Axe FX, so I'm not actually monitor, monitoring from uh, using my my amps. I, I'm using. Sims and stuff like that all the time. It's just like the end reamping for the actual end product where I'm using the amps, or when I'm just for shits and giggles sit around and just play guitar at home. And that's how I use my Kemper too. And the thing though is, I feel like the Kemper and the Axe Effects do respond a lot closer to I agree real amps than fully software. Now that's not true 100 percent of the time, but I do feel like. You know, I mean, we're talking about $2,000 hardware units. A lot of work came into it, especially with the latest Kemper firmware. It just responds a lot more like the real thing. What about other aspects of your mixes? Because, you know, it's not just about guitar tone. Well, I can, t- I can say one thing, because we worked on the uh, that uh, sample for Menace. <laughs> and I could tell that a guitar player had mixed it. Oh, yeah? You can always <laughs> tell those things, you know. But yeah. <laughs> now, well, I mean, it's like for a demo of an amp sim, the guitar should be loud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So definitely warranted in that in that scenario. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, what what exactly do you use? I guess you're 100% in the box or or are you not? What do you mean? In what sense? Or with with other stuff? So uh, in the box means you don't use outboard summing no. gear. You don't use no. an analog board. You no. don't use a console. Everything is in Logic. The Apogee is all I have that is outboard. The one thing that connects me uh, between uh, my uh, for reamping is the torpedo reload. So like a reamp box. I've heard a lot about that. What, like, I have no idea what it even is. It's basically a, a DI box, a reamp box, and a attenuator at the same time. So I mean, it's uh, it's basically yeah. That's that's actually become a pretty center piece of equipment of my setup because I nowadays I track all my DIs through there, and uh, I reamp everything through that that as well. So uh, the two key pieces of gear that I have is that torpedo reload and the Apogee, I would say. Other than that... Do you use the attenuator on it? Uh, not really. I was going to say, you've got an ISO yeah. guy, why would you need no, to? But, but it has, if if you want to be able to crank. And I mean, a lot of people that are recording at home don't don't have the ability to crank their amps. And uh, it uh, just give, gives you the option. Let's talk about attenuators for a second, if anybody here has had experience with them. My experience with them 
and now this might be outdated, but my experience is that they destroy amplifiers. Like, amplifiers blow up, literally. Uh, maybe the talk technology is better now. So I'm, I'm talking like 10 years ago. I think so. I mean, it's like I, I've tried the THD back in the past, and what what they're called? They're called hot plate. Hot plate. And uh, I haven't had any problems with those, but uh, um, I think as long as long as you use them moderately, it won't sound like ass, or I don't think they'll blow up. The, I think the problem is that people are turning up their amps way too loud when they're using the attenuator. So, I mean, it's, um, I think that might be one of the reasons why they blow up. Well, there is only one volume setting for any amp, and that's obviously <laughs> all tens, so... You know. Every set, every knob, <laughs> all the way up yep. at all times. So, I mean, you still need to be careful. It's still a, a living piece of gear that you're working with. I mean, in the same way that you wouldn't crank a 1x12 cabinet with a 100-watt amplifier. I mean, it's the same basic uh, principle, I would say. So... Don't be an idiot, basically. <laughs> I mean, just be careful. I mean, you don't have to fucking... Your amp doesn't sound the best when it's cranked at fucking three o'clock. I mean, it's not. It. Your car doesn't run the best when you floor it all the way and try to go no. to top speed. <laughs> no. So, I mean, it's uh, be moderate and uh, with your master volume and you'll be fine. Okay. Are there any plugins that you favor over others? Uh, I'm a very big fan of the stock Logic plugins. Thank you. All the all the, the, the awesome. uh, channel EQs, the comp- the compressor has been. I mean, they've really upgraded the processor. Uh, the compressor. I think it was the last update. They uh, did a full makeover of the compressor, and uh, I u- also used their multipressor and um, the multiband compressor. And I've also been a very big fan of the. The, their ad limiter, uh, but I just recently started using the Fab Filter. They make good stuff. Yeah, I, at least for their limited. When I was uh, mixing the latest Fiat album, I just tried a whole bunch. I bought a bunch of uh, limiters just to try them out. A lot of slate, a lot of stuff like that. And I mean, uh, I think the Fab Filter one was just the one with the most transparency. I would say. I mean, it's uh, it's a really good one. I like that one a lot. It is. Once you figure out the attack release on it, yeah. um, I think that that actually is a, a really, really good one. I, I'm glad you said that, though, because one thing that we try to impress upon our listeners is that just like if you can't get a good tone with the 57, you can't get a good tone, if you can't make it work with stock plugins, for the most part, you're not going to be able to make it work with more expensive plugins. Yeah. The stock plugins are good enough for just about everything. Now, of course, there's plugins that'll get you a certain tone color or, you know, more advanced stuff that you can definitely get into. But, you know, at the very fundamental level, you should be able to work with all stock plugins and still get a killer result. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I started, I couldn't really afford plugins. I mean, when I was sitting with Cakewalk 9 or whatever, I mean... You used what was there, and uh, I mean, I'm kind of used to. I've been using Logic for probably 12 years or something like that, so I'm very accustomed to it. And yeah, I mean, the, the, just the channel EQ is super awesome. I love that. And uh, let me change. Unless you guys want to talk about stock plugins and stuff a little longer, uh, I know we're almost out of time. So there's just one more thing I want to bring up. 
um, because because this is something that a lot of people are trying to get into, and it's exceedingly more important with every passing year, and that's video. And okay, the reason I want to bring this up is because I know that Keith went to school for it, and obviously he was better than everybody else and got himself a career uh, before he even graduated school. You say you didn't go to school for video and you just got better by doing it a lot, but what on earth made you even think that it was important to do it all the time, and what kind of tips would you recommend for audio people who want to get into making video? And I don't just mean making gear demos and stuff. I just mean people who want to be able to take more video and incorporate that into what they do because it is a fact of life. You need video now. I mean, like we talked about before, I mean, there's the, the music business is so oversaturated with bands. I mean, you have to have a video of some sort. I mean, just to promote yourself. And I mean, it's, uh, it's a lot more appealing and it's probably going to be a lot easier to keep uh, people's interest. I mean, uh, their attention up with having a video rather than just, yeah, Hey, come listen to this SoundCloud clip that I did. Um, I mean, I think it's so important and it, that, that, uh, people can watch you. Uh, I think, I think a lot of people want to see you perform, and uh, nail whatever you're, you're playing or whatever. I mean, it's uh, in an oversaturated world, I think just having videos or just tr trying to be on every like social media just to be like a virus is definitely something you, you have to do to be able to stand out. What did you do to get better at it besides just doing it a lot? Or is that what you did? Just uh, the, my kind of luck, I would say, was that I I was one of the first ones that actually did it. So I saw a very quick gathering of people that watched my video. So I was like, okay, let's just keep on doing it and up the pace and up the quality. I was probably like the first guy who did these videos in high definition because at the time people didn't have high definition cameras. And uh, I mean, just that and trying to just up my game all the time and uh, just trying to force myself to become better and just edit better and just make everything sound better or look better. I mean, I I bought lights. I made everything look better. I mean, it's, uh, you just have you just don't sell for the bedroom uh, <laughs> video with dimmed lights and just you sitting in and uh, playing on your <laughs> on the side of your bed. I mean, it's try to just try to up your game a little bit. Put some effort into it. I mean, it's. It's pretty simple. It's just, I mean, the info's out there. Yeah, I mean, and it's for free. I mean, it, th these services are free right now. I mean, Facebook is free, and it's basically free marketing if you if you know your what you're doing. Yeah, if you have good content, the infrastructure is there for you to get it out to people. It's a yeah. beautiful thing. I mean, it's it's a, it's an excellent era to live in if you're a you know, like a bedroom guitar playing guy or whatever. I mean, it's. Um, I mean, it's like I said, it's oversaturated with both awesome and shitty material. But I mean, it's definitely like a Darwin thing. The strong will survive. I mean, those will pop up and those are the people that are going to last. Is there anything you've got coming up you want to promote? Any cool amps, guitars, albums, any? Oh, I do have like a bunch of cool guitar stuff coming coming, and also, of course, in the amp department as well. But nothing I can talk about, of course. Uh. Uh, other than that, I'm working on, I'm currently currently writing 
uh, an upcoming Haunted album. So we're kind of uh, trying to do that that one quick. And uh, other than that, I'm out touring this summer, doing some festivals and shit like that. I'm trying to have a bit of vacation and uh, try to spend some time with my family and uh, hopefully also get some time to play some video games because I haven't been into that for a while. Yeah, vacation is good for the soul, man. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, vacation for me is like reamping and playing video <laughs> games at the same time. <laughs> so you don't take the six-week Swedish vacation? I mean, you, you can really when this is your style of living. I mean, I did when I had my regular day job, but, but right now it's like there isn't really a vacation. Vacation for me, I would say, is when you go on tour or go play festivals because you get... Um, Someone tells you what to do and, yeah, sit on this chair over here and put your ass on this bus. I mean, and uh, go here, uh, play, put your guitar on and play this show. I mean, it's, you get, uh, there, there's a plan <laughs> behind everything. And for me, that's a vacation. So when your mind is free of, of having to cultivate the plan, yeah. Yes, exactly. And I can't really do the, there's no Wi-Fi and, or whatever, the Wi-Fi is shot. And I mean, I can't be on Facebook. It's, that's definitely like my vacation when, uh, when I'm out playing with the Haunted because someone else is taking care of me. I'm, like a, I'm back being like a baby and uh, just sitting around and just, just waiting for someone to tell me what to do. And that's, that's awesome for me. I love that. Uh, I, my one experience of being a session guitar player on a tour was fantastic. Was like All I had to do was show up and kick ass on guitar. I loved it. Yeah, exactly. That, that, I mean, the Six Feet Under gig I had was awesome because the songs were easy. I just play rhythm guitar. I mean, it's, some songs only had like two riffs. And it's basically for... It was so awesome. I could drink and I mean, it's, uh, I can just hang and just chill and just rock the fuck out. I didn't have any solos to worry about or anything like that. It was, it was super awesome. That sounds great. Well, Ola, thank you so much for coming on. It's been awesome talking to you as usual. Definitely. Oh, thank you guys. Yeah. I think that, I think our audience will really, really appreciate this because we've got a lot of guitar players and obviously everybody who records has to record guitar players. So it's, Get great to get the perspective from a guitar player who records and how you go about it. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. So thank you. Uh, I hope some, something I said uh, made sense. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, at least 10% of it. At least 10% yeah. of it made sense. That's kind of my ratio right there. Like 10% is what, what makes sense. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks, man. Oh, thank you, guys. Yeah, well, well I'll be talking to you soon, man. Have a Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. See ya. Yes. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Creative Live, the world's best online classroom for creative professionals with classes on songwriting, engineering, mixing, and mastering. Go to creativelive.com slash audio to start learning now. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is also brought to you by Ernie Ball, the world's premium manufacturer of guitar strings, bass strings, and guitar accessories. Go to www.ernieball.com to learn more. To ask us questions, suggest topics, and interact, visit urmacademy.com and subscribe today.